All right, let's let's do a little. We like we we love us some participation here at City Life, do we not? Which makes all the visitors nervous when the person with the microphone comes off the off the stage. So what what are your 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 favorite family board game or family card game that you play together? You raise your hand, I'll point to you. Favorite family board game or card game that you play? I know the gamers are in here. Who? Okay, but many, many, many card games, board games. Anybody over here? Skippo, all right. Do your kids play it with you? Is it a family one? Not yet, but you're going to bring them up in the ways of Skippo. Family would be trouble then. Trouble? There's a lot of popping with trouble. It's noisy. It's noisy. That's fair. Somebody else. Cart. Tyler. Jenga? Oh, the, with the blocks? Do you have the normal size or the big ones that could fracture? You have both. Yeah, I thought you might. I thought you might. Anybody else? Mariah. Connect Four. I like that. It's been around for a long time. I like it. I like it. Somebody else? Daniel? Settlers of Catan. There you go. Brandy's giving you a little applause on that. Jamal? Spades. Hey. 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 I know. We got to play. We got to play. May. Euchre. All right. Euchre. I've never played Euchre. I might have to learn. Somebody else? Yes. Phase 10, that's our vacation game. Phase 10. Anybody? Uno. They have all kinds of new Unos out there. I know. And they're very confusing. Thank you. Thank you, Debbie. Thank you. Don't mess up a good thing, right? Was there a hand up back here? Canasta. Yes. Somebody else? Gene? Dominoes. Yes. I like it. I like it. Same. You're doubling down on Dominoes. All right, all right. Did you have one? Did you say one? I, I never heard it called chicken foot. All right, okay. She's breaking out the, I could throw that around. People think I know what I'm talking about. When, when you're playing games, there are three kinds of people. There are three kinds of people. There are the rule people, and you know who you are. Who said yes right away? Amy, yeah. It came out before you knew it was coming, right? It was like, yes, yeah, yeah, sorry. There's the rule people. There are the fun people. Yes, Debbie, you're, you're fun. Yeah, there's, there's, the, there's the fun person. Those people sometimes irritate each other, but both of them are equally irritated by the third, which are the competitor people. Yes, Vanessa and I are both competitor. Who are my competitor people? Because the competitor people say whether or not we follow the rules or whether or not we have fun, what matters is did we win? If the children cry, if no one's speaking, it does not matter because we won the game. We won the game. right? You know, you know who you are, fun, rule, or competitor. But regardless of which of those three that you are, you have all said, At some point during a game, this phrase, hey, you can't do that. (laughs) Right? right, You with me? Who said that recently during a game? Yeah? Hey, you you can't do that. Whether or not you're a rule follower, a fun person, or a competitor, there's something inside of us if somebody does something that they're not supposed to do, right there, that's the phrase, hey, you can't do that. So in life, 
Who decides what's right and wrong? The most important game of all. Who decides what's right and what's wrong? And more specifically, here it comes, as Christians, do we have a practice of pointing that phrase at ourselves? Do do we have a regular practice of taking that phrase and that statement and shining it on our own lives? I believe this is the single biggest contributing factor to Christians today, myself included, undermining our witness for Christ to the world. The disparity that far too often exists between what we say we believe and how we live. The disparity that exists between what we say we believe and how we live that more often than not is observable by the world that we're trying to reach with the gospel of Christ. So tonight we're talking about what we're calling a moral conversion. We kicked off a series last week. I'm going to give you a little bit of recap in just a minute. But this idea of a moral conversion means being responsible. If you were in our parenting class this week, come on, these go hand in hand together. Moral conversion means being responsible to cultivate habits that embody the moral warehouse. Did you know you have a moral warehouse? Some of us, our shelves are emptier than others. For some of us, maybe that warehouse is under construction. For, for some people, you, right, you're, you walk through their warehouse and you are in awe at the inventory that they have. Those are the people that you want to be your friends. Right? You, we have a moral warehouse, this part of us where we store all of the values and the virtues and the principles that are supposed to guide us in this life. We're responsible to cultivate habits, meaning that to develop a life that is in alignment with what's on the shelves in that warehouse, that one has embraced, and to live according to a broader Social responsibility. You might say, why is that phrase on there? And you're going to know the answer to that by the end of this message. With each of these five conversions that we're walking through in this series, there is a unique aspect to a church family that is necessary if people are going to experience a moral conversion. And for us, we're saying that means that you need to be a part of a church that believes in discipleship, a discipleship community, meaning that, yes, we recognize and believe that when we make a vow of devotion to Christ, that heaven is promised to us. But along the way, our primary responsibility is to become like Christ as we work toward heaven that is waiting for us. We're not ever going to become like him to the degree that's possible unless we are pressing and challenging one another. Unless we are in a community that is comfortable saying to one another and to ourselves, hey, you can't do that. Did you know that there are several psychological forces that make good people do bad things? I was doing some research on this week. I came across this article that listed 14. I was like, we don't have time to talk about 14. But I picked five that I think you're going to be familiar with. One of them is called the broken window theory. They're going to pop up on the screen. The broken window theory is a psychological effect that causes good people to do bad things, meaning that you have 
what you need in your moral warehouse to make the right decision, but you choose to do something that is contrary to your moral warehouse. This idea of a broken window theory is, is borrowed from community development. If, in, in when I describe it, you're, you're going to understand it. If there is a community in a neighborhood that is filled with abandoned buildings, with boarded up windows and broken glass and trash all over the ground, as you go into a community like that, even though maybe that you would never throw trash on the ground because that violates your moral warehouse, you do it because of the environment that you're in. Meaning that the environment that you're in begins to displace the morals that are in your warehouse. Broken window theory. The, another one is called cognitive dissonance. This, this is speaking to the stress that you feel when you have tension in your life because you're doing something you know violates your moral warehouse. Cognitive dissonance means that there is a stress that you're, you're under. If, if, if you're doing something you know is wrong, no, you're knowing, and, and cognitive dissonance causes good people to do bad things because instead of, because of our human nature, altering our behavior to come in alignment with this moral belief, we get rid of the moral belief to justify our behavior because we can't stand the stress that we're under. The Pygmalion effect. The Pygmalion effect says that people tend to behave in a manner that is consistent with the way that they are treated. How many of you know that parenting is a big driver in that, right? That, that we tend, even if you have a moral warehouse that is well-stocked, if someone treats you and names you and calls you in ways that are derogatory over and over again, that that psychological effect can cause you to begin to live how they are defining you instead of how your moral warehouse exists. Reactance theory. Now, this is one of the things that we've seen over the last few years with all the political unrest. Reactance theory is when people give themselves permission to violate their own moral compass because they feel that someone is infringing upon their rights. And so part of our human nature is we don't like when people infringe upon our rights, and so we feel like we're allowed to do immoral things and that it's justified because we're fighting for the rights that we have. Right? I'm not saying to you that any of these things are good. Are you with me? This is us understanding things that are happening inside of us that cause us to operate in a manner that's different from our moral health. The last one is the one that most of us suffer from, the compensation effect. No, it doesn't mean that if you're bribed enough money, you'll do, you'll do something, right? That's a different one. The compensation effect means that you operate in life like you're balancing a checkbook. As long as the, the good that I do is more than the bad, it's okay. Meaning that the good compensates for the bad. All of these and many others, right? The flaws of human nature that we struggle with cause good people to do wrong things, to violate the moral compass that we have. We're talking about a moral conversion because this series called Shema is the Hebrew word for hear and listen. So whenever you're reading in the Old Testament and you see the word hear or listen, it's the, more often than not, it's the Hebrew word Shema. And then Jesus oftentimes said hear and listen. You're going to see it as we get into our text tonight. That that word meant something to a primarily Jewish audience. When he used that word hear, he often used the phrase, he that has an ear, let him hear. That meant something to that group of people because in Hebrew, there's no word for obedience. When it comes to our relationship with God, there's just the word Shema. Meaning that to hear and to obey are two sides of the same coin when it comes to our relationship with him. 
And so as we have, if, if we as Christians are going to close the gap between listening and obedience, what I'm teaching you in this series, what we teach here at this church, is that you and I have to do the hard work of these five conversions of the heart. These five conversions help us close that gap. It helps us become reflexively obedient to God. There's a work that Christ does in us. But how many of you know that there's a work that Christ invites us to do with him? And these five conversions require us to put forth some effort. That's why at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, which we referenced tonight as we were praying over the house family, Jesus sums it all up by saying the difference between the person that builds their house or their life on seeking sand on the solid rock, the difference is the one who hears Shema, what Jesus is saying and follows them. Rebellious, reluctant, and reflexive. We teach you these three words here at City Life Church. All of us throughout our lives, when we find or feel that God is nudging us to do something, maybe to add something to our moral warehouse, maybe it is our moral warehouse in and of itself, which is the seat of the human conscience, in and of itself it is prompting us to do something or to not do something, we fall somewhere on the scale. We're, we're either rebellious, reluctant, which is better than being rebellious, but it's not as good as being reflexive. In all the areas of our life, part of this journey is I want to move towards this place of being reflexively obedient to the Father. Have you ever noticed that when Jesus was here 2,000 years ago, one of the things that he said is that I only ever do what I see the Father doing. And I only ever say what I hear the Father saying. What's he teaching us there? He's teaching us Shema. He's saying that he himself, as the Son, is perfectly reflexively obedient to him. And so should we be. I want the reflex of my heart. I want the reflex of your heart to be one of obedience to God. If you're a part of this church for any amount of time, I hope that what you begin to find is your life moves on the scale of rebellious and reluctant and reflexive. That if, if you're with us for an extended amount of time, that through the, the areas of your life you find yourself moving on that scale and that it begins to give you a language to talk with each other and with your children. Part of what it means for a moral conversion. The diagram is going to pop back up. In this series, we're going to be talking about all five of these, the hard work of renovating the heart. Come on, but we can do it. Somebody say, you can do it. Moral conversion means being responsible to cultivate habits that embody the moral warehouse one has embraced and to live according to a broader social responsibility. Listen to this thought. I am never going to be better at being obedient to God until I learn how to be true to myself, which must include genuine care and compassion for others. Let me say that again. I am never going to be better at being obedient to God until I learn how to be true to myself, meaning that, that all of us have some sense of morality, even if it's small. And this idea of being reflexively obedient to God begins by learning this habit of being true to our conscience, which must include a genuine care and compassion for others, which I'm going to show you 
in just a minute. Somebody say the right rules. The right rules matter. St. Augustine, a famous theologian who lived from 354 to 430 A.D., his definition of sin is this. I love it. An utterance, a deed, or a desire that is contrary to the eternal law. An utterance, a deed, or a desire that is contrary to eternal law. I think none of you are going to be surprised to hear me say that the rules that we're supposed to be following as Christians come from this book and this book alone, the Bible. And, and I think most of you, whether you're in this room or where you're watching online, whether or not you are a devoted follower of Christ or not, have some sense of familiarity with this idea that the Bible is supposed to give Christians a list of rules that we're supposed to follow, meaning that it is supposed to build our moral warehouse. It's supposed to instruct us on our moral warehouse. And if we spend any amount of time reading the Bible, I think much of it, there's a self-evidencing quality to the things that we're told, don't do this and you should do that. But it doesn't mean that there still isn't nuance when it comes to right and wrong. It doesn't mean that there isn't still some complexity and so I'm going to spend a little time talking about that because I feel like this is where oftentimes people get hung up is, is that they're not willing to negotiate and talk about the complexity and the nuance that exists when it comes to right and wrong. And it also creates conflict amongst the body of Christ unnecessarily because we don't like to acknowledge the nuance. The first one is this. If, if you're asking the question, is something wrong? right? Is it, is it something the Bible would call sin? One of the first things we need to ask ourselves is, is it a sin of omission or is it a sin of commission, which is in James 1.17. We forget the Bible has a lot to say about sin of things that we're not doing that we should. If, if we're not careful, especially if you are a parent, if you're only giving your children an understanding of the don't, you've left out half of the Christian experience. Right? In fact, we would argue, one of the things that we focused on as a family, if you talk more about the do's of Christianity, a lot of times the don'ts begin to take care of themselves. That's why we, in the series that we get into the summer for practice, when we talk about the 12 pathways, if, if, you, if your life is filled with the practice of spiritual disciplines, again, 12 pathways, then, then what we find is that you are going to have a spiritually vibrant life, and it begins to build the moral warehouse on its own. But there's do's and there's don'ts. There's things that we're not supposed to do and things that we are supposed to do, sometimes as Christians. We, we, we find ourselves slipping into this place of self-righteousness. Is that just my problem or is it yours too? Right? One of the things that you see is Jesus began to, to, to combat the prevailing view of his day as he began to be in conflict with the religious leaders of his day. They had all the don'ts down, but they were doing very few of the do's. And so they viewed themselves as better than, you with me? They viewed themselves as better than the people that were failing in the don'ts. But Jesus was saying, hey, some of you, you're failing actually more than people you see as being immoral because you're doing such a poor job of doing the things you're supposed to be doing. We've got to be willing to turn that finger onto ourselves that says, hey, you can't do that. But sometimes that, hey, you can't do that means, hey, you can't do that in the sense of you've got to stop omitting the addition of this thing that you're called to. 
Sin of omission and sin of commission, it's part of understanding the rules of Christianity, this life of being a devoted follower of Christ. The next one is this. Is something, whatever you want to put in the blank there, a sin of morality? Is it a sin because it's a matter of conscience? Or is it a sin because of forgoing liberty? Some people spend their whole lives in Christian communities and no one ever talks to them about these three things. And it's also one of the reasons why there's so much conflict in the church today. A sin of morality means that it has always been wrong. It's wrong today. And if Jesus doesn't come back for another 10,000 years, it's still going to be wrong then. I mean, it's wrong for all people, for all time, forever. The Ten Commandments would be an example. If Jesus doesn't come back for another 10,000 years, heaven isn't going to step in and say, we have an update. There are now only seven. And a second edition of the Bible is going to come out. Right? We know, we know that's not going to happen. Right? Morality is all people for all time. Paul talks about this thing called a matter of conscience, meaning that it might violate your conscience, but it doesn't violate someone else's. So if you do it, even though it violates your conscience, you have sinned, but someone else maybe is free to do or not to do because it doesn't violate their conscience. Paul uses the example of all of the, the eating restrictions we use, we try to use as a, a, a modern-day example, that the alcohol consumption we feel like is a great example for this, that the Bible talks about not being drunk, but we don't believe that there's a prohibition for all people for all time to never consume in any way. But, but if there is somebody that it violates their conscience, then they should abstain. Are you with me? But maybe someone who it doesn't, that they're free. And one of the ways we get into trouble as Christians is we begin to judge others based on the conscience we have instead of understanding the conscience that God has given them. Forgoing liberty means that if it does not violate your conscience and it's not a universal morality, you should be willing to give it up in certain situations and circumstances for the betterment of other people. Meaning that if you're out to dinner and you like a nice juicy Cabernet with your medium rare steak, but the person that you're having dinner with is a recovering alcoholic, you, you better order a root beer. You, you tracking with me? You might say, well, Fred, it doesn't violate my conscience. Yeah, but you should be concerned about the person that you're with. And so sometimes as Christians, we do a poor job of not be willing to forgo liberties that are available to us because we're too self-focused. The third one is this. Is it a sin that is time-bound? This is important. The Bible talks about women wearing head coverings. How many women were given a head covering when they came into church tonight? Yeah, nobody. There's, there's, there's parts of the Bible that talk about women being kept silent in the church. If you go to certain parts of the world, if you go on a mission trip to Niger, which I trust that many of you are, when you go to a church service there, you know what you're going to find is that men sit on one side of the church, women sit on the other side of the church. We see that in Scripture too. But this idea of things being time-bound means that they're there in Scripture because of a cultural norm that God was making room for. And, 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 and it's up to us through scholars and through the direction of the prompting of the Holy Spirit and through accountability 
ask the question, is that something that was a prohibition then because God was making room for a cultural norm, or is it something that's supposed to be for all time? Matthew 15, 13, Jesus is in a conversation just like this with the religious leaders, and the disciples come to him, as they often did, and they say, Jesus, you realize you offended all of the religious leaders, right? Jesus is like, yeah, what's new? That's part of my everyday. And he makes this statement, everything that is not planted by my Father will be uprooted. It's an important verse. He's, he's talking about this idea of, of things that existed because it was a cultural norm, that it's okay for cultural norms to exist. Just make sure that you don't elevate it to a place of universal morality for all people for all time. The last one is this. Is it a sin that leads to death? This, is so, this fourth one, it's important. 1 John 5, 17 talks about the sin that leads to death. Now, now, our Catholic brothers and sisters in Christ have a better understanding than this. They talk about this idea of, of venial sin versus a mortal sin. Now, I don't agree with all the applications through that theological position, but the terminology matters for us because it reminds us that not every sin has the same impact on us personally and the same impact on, on, on society. The smallest of sin keeps us separated from God, Right? When it comes to that, we understand that all sin is the same. But all sin is not the same when it comes to how it affects us, how it affects our relationships, and how it affects society around us. Some things are worse than others. There is sin that leads to death. Listen to these thoughts. If you ignore the complexity like we just navigated through. Some of you have never heard those things before. If you ignore the complexity of something in an effort to simplify truth, you inevitably create the confusion you were trying to avoid to begin with. Any, and this is important. Any sin that is listed in Scripture with the stated consequence of spiritual death, eternal damnation, or the loss of heaven as an inheritance can never be time-bound or a matter of conscience. That's how God slips it in there to make sure that there's a check in our interpretation. Verses are included there. You can download these notes online. Those are the right rules. Somebody say the right reasons. The right reasons. Let me jump right down to John 8, 1 through 11. Let's read through this story. It's just it's 11 verses, but many of you are familiar with this story. It says, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple, and a crowd had soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. And as he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, and they put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her, what do you say? Next slide. They were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him, but Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger, right? For all of us who are Bible nerds, this is on our list when we get to heaven, right? What did you write in the sand, right? He, he, he stoops down and just begins to write in the sand. They kept demanding an answer. So good, right? So he stood up. And again, he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. He's good, isn't he? He's good. Then he stooped down and again wrote in the dust. Next slide. So good. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest. Why were the oldest the first ones to leave? 
Yeah, they got the biggest, biggest list of things that they've done. The most regrets. Beginning with the oldest until only Jesus was left. Now, now I like to point this out. So many times we think that only Jesus was left with this woman and it was just the two of them. But that's not what the text says. It says that only Jesus was left with her with the crowd that remained. This is important. I'm going to get to that in a minute. The crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I go and sin no more. What a great story. What a great story. Not a parable, not a fairy tale, history recorded for us. I love that Jesus does not minimize her sin. Jesus is not saying, it's okay what you did. He's not saying, you know, I know me and the Father, we're a little bit, you know, old school, outdated. And, it, you know, it's, it's the things that you're doing, it's just in keeping with modern times. He doesn't do that. He doesn't minimize her sin. He doesn't make room for it. He doesn't negotiate the moral warehouse. He understands that the right rules matter. But he also understands that the right reasons do too. I believe here that Jesus was trying again to help the religious leaders see that you're so focused on all the things that people aren't supposed to do that you have completely forgotten your responsibility in society as the children of God and the spiritual leaders of this community that you're supposed to also be showing them the things that you must do. He's not challenging their rule book, but what he is challenging is their motivation for the reason behind their actions. See, being right is not enough, people. Just let's let that sink in just for a minute. For far too long, evangelical America has adopted this mindset and mentality that being right is enough, and, and that's not Jesus' Christianity. Jesus says, hey, be right, right? Have the right rules, but make sure that you're moving through society-motivated by the right reasons. I love that he says to her, go and sin no more. See, the religious leaders engage Jesus with Scripture, and Jesus wraps it up. Now, you might not recognize it, but this was Jesus' common paraphrase for 2 Chronicles 7.14, where, where in the Old Testament it says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, right? And what does it say? And turn from their wicked ways. Jesus just took, like Jesus had a way of taking big chunks of Old Testament text and just dropping it down into a short statement, right? So his statement, go and sin no more, right? They started with the Bible, Jesus finishes with it. The accusers left. I, I, this is one of the things I say to young pastors, right? Because I'm not a young pastor anymore. I tell them it's not always a bad thing when people leave your church. And I tell them about this story. It, it's hard as a pastor sometimes when people leave your church. The, the, the question is, did they, did they leave for the right reason? See, because it was important that those people left that crowd. 
It was important that the crowd that remained were people that understood that rules matter, but they also understood the manner in which we apply those rules is equally important. It was important that that crowd, what ended up in this crowd, was a group of people that were not accommodating adulterous behavior, but they also realized and recognized that the dignity of this woman was also important. And I want to be in a community of people that understands the right rules. But can I just tell you this? I also want to be a part of a community of people that understand the right rules for the right reasons. And that we bring those rules to bear with the right motivation. Never to demean, never to show up, never to prove a point, never to win an argument. I am never going to be better at being obedient to God until I learn how to be true to myself, the moral warehouse that's building inside of me, that's building inside of you, which must include a genuine care and compassion for others. This is part of what it means to go on a journey of a moral conversion together as a faith community. Invite the worship team to come back up. I want the reflex of my heart to be one of obedience to God. The reflex of my heart to be one of obedience to God. And we are not going to get there unless we're willing to do the hard work of these conversions. For some of you hearing them, you're going to be hearing about them for the first time. Every, every few years, we're going to circle back and we're going to hit this series. This is part of what discipleship looks like here at City Life. We, we, we're not just saying, be like Jesus. We're saying, hey, this is how we can do it. Before we go into this closing song, I want to throw these five questions up here to you. These five questions. You can take a picture of that. Again, our notes are always online. These are five important questions for you to ask. Have I taken personal responsibility for my life and actions? Have I taken personal responsibility for my life and actions? Do, do I act in the same? Do, do I act the same when I'm in public? is when I am alone? Do I act the same when I'm in public and when I'm alone? Do I cultivate virtues and values and develop habits that enable me to live by my principles? Do I acknowledge and confront my inconsistent behavior? Not just other people's inconsistent behavior, but do I acknowledge and confront my own? And finally, is my sense of right and wrong moving me more toward care and compassion for others? That's a good list, isn't it? It's a good list. Stand with me as we pray and as we go into this closing song. Help us, Lord. Help us to know the right rules, understand the right rules, teach the right rules, live by the right rules. May it be that when we get to the end of our days that our moral warehouse it's going to have a few additions that are built onto it than from when we started. But help us also, God, to be just as moved and motivated by the right reasons. Help us to always see that both of those go hand in hand. That just like hear and obey are two sides of the same coin, Shema, when it comes to reflexive obedience. Help us to understand that the right rules and the right reasons are also two sides of the same coin because that was your example to us. 
Nobody knew the rules better than you, Jesus. But you never use those rules or people falling short by them for the wrong reasons. Help us to always move with compassion and care for others. So Holy Spirit, we just, in this moment of singing this song, we're just going to yield our heart to you. Maybe as we were looking at those five questions, Holy Spirit, that you kind of, you drew a highlighter on one of them for some of us here, for somebody that's watching online or somebody that's, that's in the room. Help us to be willing to turn that finger back to ourselves. Help us to say that phrase, hey, you can't do that to ourselves more than we say it to the world around us. Come on, in Christ's name, let's worship together.